Okay, well, here we are, February the 4th. We're well into the year now. We're looking at Lesson 15 from our study in Mark. Mark, listen to me, I'm still thinking about Mark. But we're in Matthew, finishing up today, I trust, Chapter 3. We've been looking fairly intently at the baptism of Jesus the past couple of lessons. And then, uh, it goes without saying, you read these scriptures and you're familiar with them, you know what this comes down to. It comes down to uh, not just the coronation of the king, which we've been focusing on, going back and being reminded that this is Matthew's overall theme, presenting Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the king. So it's fitting as he begins his public ministry here, coming forth, giving himself up for baptism, identifying with sinners, which is key in his humanity. He comes and presents himself, and then we begin to see the manifestation, if you will, uh, the, the revelation, the example of the Trinity. We see that here. And so it's hard to get into these passages and not look a little bit at the Trinity specifically and talk about it. There's so much there. Uh, I don't. I don't plan to go through that today until you're just ad nausea with it. But we do want to look at it a little a, on a little deeper level if we can, and discover some things about it this morning uh, that we see revealed here in these last couple of verses, verses 16 and 17 uh, from the third chapter. So verse 16 reads this way, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And that kind of ends where we've been with his submission to baptism. And then it picks up with the latter part of the verse. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And you know, we haven't said a whole lot about baptism in particular when it when we talk about the mode of baptism, maybe I could have gone over that the first time the word <laughs> baptize or baptizo was used. We didn't really have any questions about that, but it come in, but it's interesting to look at. You're in the right class. They just moved our chairs around a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's shaking things up for us. But when we look at the word uh, that we get the English word baptized from, of course, you should be familiar, it's baptizo, and it's the word that you see throughout uh, the scripture, and it does mean to dip an object into water or some other kind of liquid. That's what the word means. Now, a lot of people have issue with this, of course, as it relates to the mode of baptism which we observe. Well, there's some things that we can look at from the Scripture, I think, just really settle it, and then a couple of historical issues when you talk about the mode of baptism. Well, obviously, it says even here that Jesus came up out of the water. Okay, what, what, do you, what kind of mental picture do you get? Because that's what the Scripture says, that He came up out of the water. What happened there? What do you see? Well, He obviously had to go down into the water, didn't he? We don't know how far, but it had to be a lot of water, right? In fact, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, verse 23, you have a reference there where it talks about John the Baptist was baptizing there because there was much water. 
That's what it says. He had to find a place, not where he could fill up a bucket and get a ladle or whatever and pour it over somebody's head or stick his hand in there and sprinkle them. You know, that's almost offensive. My dad used to do that to me, you know, sprinkle water at me. But any of that, that's not what he was doing. He went, you know, just as Jesus went down into the water so that he could indeed be immersed. Well, and then historically, we know that, that baptize originally meant nothing other than to dip. And it was the same way. It's always been that way. It's, it's a reference to submerging someone under water. What you have, according to commentary anyway, you, through the process of translation and really some improper application of the word baptizo to other places in scripture that talks about specifically water being poured or water being sprinkled it uses that word but it's it's a it's an errant application (laughs) is what it is so it doesn't really apply so once again you go back and look at the original language and you find the word baptizo and it always meant to immerse there's no other term other than baptizo that's used for baptizing in the bible there's not it's the only one. So, historically, uh, what else? The Christian church uh, always uh, knew no other form. The early church didn't know another form of baptism all the way up to the Middle Ages. I mean, think about that. I mean, even the Catholic church baptized by immersion. So, it just began to change for who knows what reason. I mean... Convenience, I don't know. Didn't want to mess up your Sunday clothes or whatever. I don't know, but it began to change. But with that change, I think you lose a lot because the whole image about baptizing is to demonstrate what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the Christian, death to sin. We're dead to that. We're raised to walk, as it says, in newness of life. It's, it's hard to get all that imagery out of pouring water on somebody's head or, or sprinkling them, is it not? So that's what we have. So I wanted to explore that uh, just a little bit uh, and hopefully give you some information that would settle that for you if you're, <laughs> if you're on the fence about the proper mode of baptism and what that means so that's what we have so he makes reference here uh, to the baptism that we've talked about so many times without a whole lot of explanation but i give that to you this morning but then he says that the heavens were opened the heavens were opened what kind of mental picture do you get here what do you see happening here this is what john witnessed Something along the side, uh, along the side of something that's that's visionary. Okay, this is what he sees and what he hears. Now, it's not all that unusual. There are other places, of course, in the Bible where it talks about, in some form, the heavens being opened. Okay, uh, such as certainly in Ezekiel chapter one, verses one through nineteen, where you have that whole imagery about the four living creatures and the chariots and the wheel inside the wheel and all that. It says that the heavens were open, he says, in Ezekiel, and he says, and I saw visions of God. And this is a typical 
uh, I won't say typical, but a manifestation, if you will, that's used more than once in the Bible. We see it. And it always involves the Spirit of God being present. It involves the, the fullness of the Spirit, if you will. For instance, again, in Acts chapter 7, you, your mind may go to Stephen. Okay, when he's being persecuted and he's given his wonderful defense there in the Scripture, you know, and bringing out the Old Testament, he literally says that the heavens were open and the sun, he saw the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. That's in, in chapter 7, verse 56. But if you look at verse 55 right before that, it also says that at that time that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. And this is his experience as this vision Okay, this, this realization that involves both hearing and seeing is made available to him. And it's communicated to him clearly as he sees with spiritual eyes. In his case, the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And why, in that particular case, what was that all about? Why was he standing there? <laughs> what do you think? Ready He's ready to receive him. And Stephen continues to pray that the Lord would not lay his death to the charge of those who were executing him for his faith and speaking the truth. So you have those two. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, of course, is where Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven. And he says plainly before that, he, he says, now I'm going to talk about visions and revelations. The spiritual experience where God conveyed to him, you know, specific realities, a revelation for him. And he has that experience. And then I'll give you one more from Revelation chapter 4, uh, verse 1, where we read, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Once again, in verse 2, John says, and of course that's John in the Revelation there, he says that I was in the Spirit. I was empowered by the Spirit. There was a fullness of the Spirit of God overwhelming me, overshadowing me, perhaps even filling me. And I don't want to stretch it unless the Bible says that plainly. But in any case, an overwhelming manifestation of God's Spirit. So we see that. And we see it here as recorded in Matthew where John the Baptist says that the heavens were opened up and he sees these things. The heavens were opened in a manner, it says, as to demonstrate the nearness of the Lord God to his Son. And once again, this is totally relational. This is God eventually putting uh, in a very public way a very spiritual way, a way that cannot be denied, uh, you know, putting his authorization on what is being manifested here about Jesus the Son, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And then I mentioned it again last week that every single thing that had happened in his life, particularly regarding his obedience, his example, whatever, up to that point, which we have virtually no record of. You know, we shared last week that, you know, from the time he, 
He speaks at the age of 12 when they find him in the temple. He's being about his father's business up to this point where he tells John, you know, suffer it to be so now. This is what we have to do to fulfill all righteousness that you baptize me. Between those two things, we don't have a word uttered. We don't, not, not from Christ. Nothing recorded. So, Any idea what his age I'm sorry? What his age, yeah, 30-ish, you know, depends on what you read, 29-ish, 30-ish, right in there. So so he's there, he's done exactly what he's supposed to do at, the, at this particular time in history. That's what he's doing. And Christ, or not Christ, but God the Father says, and we'll see it in a minute, I'm well pleased with him. We're right on. We're right on target here. We're right on schedule, as God always will be. Jesus makes reference to his closeness to the Father many, many times. It's recorded throughout the Gospels. He refers to him as his Father. And what would you say is always, almost always, the primary evidence of the closeness between Jesus and his Father? What do you always see regarding? Christ in his relationship to his Father. What can he always say? In fact, he does say it in Scripture. He always does and says and thinks and everything exactly what the Father tells him to do. So it's this perfect picture of obedience. You can't separate it. This is his, this is his example to us that we are to be obedient. And this translates to us as well in our witness, in our sanctification, just as Paul said. Paul would say two or three times, be examples of me. Be examples of me. And on one occasion, he says, be examples of me, even as I am an example of Christ. Or as if to say, only as I typify, demonstrate, manifest to you the person of Jesus Christ. And this is very important because this has to do with our sanctification. This has to do with our effectiveness, our genuineness, if you will, as a believer. This is what Paul has in mind when he tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. This is what Peter has in mind when he suggests the same thing in different words in First Peter. You look at your life. What is your desire? Even if you fail... What is your overwhelming desire regarding the claims of Christ, the demands of His Word upon our life? What is it? It's to be obedient to Him. To find the courage sometimes to be obedient. To be willing to drop our pride and accept, for instance, that we might have been wrong about a particular issue. Maybe even a doctrinal issue or something that we understand. What does the Word say? What is our desire? It's to know The truth, and having known that truth, to be obedient to that truth. And that in a nutshell is what our Christian life is about. So Christ is our example, and the Lord God Himself is going to say so here just as we get down to verse 17 here in just a minute. So we do see all three persons of the Trinity here. They're clearly seen. In these two verses, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Christ the Son, of course, bringing Himself forward, declaring His public ministry, submitting 
to baptism, identifying with sinners. That's the key thing. Identifying with them. He is the anointed king. And here he is. So we see the son on the scene here. And then the Holy Spirit is present. And he's seen, as it says, descending as a dove and lighting on him. Now, once again, what's, what's the imagery here? What do, you, what do you see? What do you think happened there? John sees the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. I think it's an actual dove. You think an actual dove came down and sat on his head or on his shoulder or something? The imagery, like a dove. Yeah, I think that's I think that's key. But why a dove? Because to be sure, there's nowhere else in the Scripture that the Holy Spirit is represented as a dove. Nowhere else. So what is the significance here? of the Holy Spirit descending, as it says, like a dove upon, upon Jesus here. Does it have anything going back to the ark? Like throwing the dove out? To, not that I know of. What, what would have been in the minds of the people there regarding a dove? What, what significance would that have been for sacrifice? Now we're getting there. Yeah, for sacrifice. And not only in general for sacrifice, but what did the dove... Oh, let me put it this way. Who would have purchased a dove, let's say, as opposed to what? A lamb or even a bullock? Poor people. And we've already talked about Christ identifying with mankind. And here is as if he's identifying himself with the, the lowest of the low the meekest of the meek, the most humble. And that's the way we come to Christ, is it not? As a dove. And yes, a dove would be, in their mind, a dove of sacrifice. And that's totally appropriate here. Because this is why He came. This is the purpose of His ministry, is it not? He came to die for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. The perfect sacrifice that perfect lamb as we see time and time again throughout the old testament without spot without blemish and you and i can't muster up that can we not in any way we can't even come close the lord had declared that for the poor this is the same gift that that mary and joseph provided if you recall because they were poor The, the dove the two turtle doves it says that they took for sacrifice when christ was born Well, this is God revealing Himself. It's a confirming sign, of course, for John the Baptist, specifically. Because if we go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 33, and we we made reference to that last time out, that's where John says when he says, I didn't know Him, but he said, He who gave me the authority to baptize also said to me, He said, It's going to be Him whom you see the Spirit of God descending upon like a dove. So, all that John knew about Christ, 
All that he knew, and, and, and we don't know everything that he knew about Jesus, his cousin up to that time. We've, we've kind of been through that and looked at what he should have known and what we know that his parents knew. But we don't know a whole lot about their interaction during those times. John was in the desert. Jesus was helping Joseph in the carpentry shop. So we don't know that. But there he is on the scene and it's that confirming sign. It, it can't be based upon John's experience. It can't be based on what he knows. It's based upon what God had told him, had revealed to him, the sign would be. And I think as we shared last week in part, that's why he says not once but twice, I didn't know him. It's just I didn't fully recognize him until this had happened. But when the Spirit of God descended upon him, as, as he said it would then that was it. That was the confirming sign. You know, I guess you could, could stretch that or consider that along the lines of how we come to know and understand what we know. It can't just be by our experience. It can't just be that. It always has to be compared to the Word of God, where the Word of God is clear, where the Word of God is explicit. You follow what I'm saying? And this is what happened with John here. So I guess you could say when this happened, that, that sealed the deal for John. That's, that was the manifestation put forth just as he said it would have. So we have the dove descending. Jesus' anointing with the Holy Spirit was unique. It was given or it was demonstrated, if you will, to empower him in his humanness. But it was also given as a visible confirming sign to John the Baptist and to everyone else watching. Isaiah prophesied saying of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's Isaiah 61.1. As he's talking about the work of Christ, the work of Messiah, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. What is this group brokenhearted about? Why do they need liberty? How are they in captivity, if you will? Why is it necessary that freedom be provided to them? Why are they these people referred to as prisoners? It's talking about you and us. What's it talking about? What's the context? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Specifically. Where again do you see these verses? Are you familiar? Where again in the New Testament is this verse quoted? Anything come to your mind? You said it. Where was it? Luke 4. In Luke chapter 4, that's where Jesus goes back to Nazareth, if you will, His hometown. And it says as His without going back and looking at it, his manner was, was to go into the synagogue and read, and he takes the scroll, and he begins to read, which includes, it was from Isaiah 61, and he reads these verses. And then he, he concludes that by saying something that gets him in a bit of trouble there in his hometown, right? He says, today, this is accomplished in your hearing. You're seeing this fulfilled today and he's talking about he's manifested himself or he's there he's the messiah he's here 
And they understand that. They understood that that's what Isaiah was talking about. And they begin saying, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? Isn't that, where's, whoa, what's he talking about here? And he knows they don't see, and, and he knows their attitude, and he talks, then he begins talking about that widow of Zarephath, the Gentile, and then he talks about Naaman, okay, a Syrian Gentile who used to rob and, and kidnap Israelis and all that, and talking about how they're going to get into heaven before these people here because they do not know and recognize their Messiah. And Christ says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to free you from all this. And what is their response? What is their response there in Luke chapter 4? To throw him off a cliff. To, ru- to run him out to the end of town. It's basically uh, part of a stoning. That's what they would do. They'd throw you off a 25 or 30 foot cliff. Not enough to kill you, just to break your legs. And they throw the stones down on you. Okay. But yet it says, because it wasn't his time, and because God was always present, it says that he moves some way. The indication it's a miraculous thing. He moves out of their midst. He gets through them, you know. He's between them or something. Then all of a sudden he's gone. Thank God. So Christ himself quotes these verses when he's made known uh, making himself known, even in his hometown there, that he is the Christ. He is the Christ. And I love that. I love that passage. So God the Father speaks when we get down to verse 17. God the Father speaks affirmation upon this whole event here. He says, And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The coronation, if you will, the public affirmation is complete. And the Lord God Himself says, this is exactly what it's supposed to be right now. I'm totally satisfied with Him. The voice speaks. It's the Greek word phone, and it refers just to a noise, a sound, a voice. Um, uh, one source that I look at says it's a particular, it's an articulate disclosure. He says it's that specific. An articulate disclosure or address. He's speaking. And he refers to him as his beloved son. And it's from the word uh, agapeo, it's agapetos, which just means well-beloved or someone who's dear. It does indicate a deep, a very rich and profound relationship and this is again based upon obedience obedience is always and i could say it over and over it's always the greatest expression our obedience and he refers to him as his huios his his son a beloved child even as you would say about a a foal which indicates it's something in particular that came from something else it's His Son. It's the right one. Okay, He is the Christ. And you understand there are many people who claim to be Christ, who claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, during that day. So the Son, if you will, is manifested of God. The radiance of God's personal glory. The image of God. In Him all deity dwells. 
And because of his deity, he is superior to the angels who worship him. And maybe it's time to to mention this word, and I use it a lot, this word manifest or manifestation. And I've, I've learned over the past few weeks that in describing particularly the Trinity, you have to be careful with that because... In our English understanding, if we talk about manifesting something, you know, you're probably meaning, well, this is just something that's revealed or something that's made available that we can see. But when you're looking specifically, particularly at the Trinity, you want to make sure that you're not, you don't have in your mind when you talk about the Trinity that it's, it's just a reflection of something. In other words, that Christ is just a reflection of the Son or the Holy Spirit is just... I'm sorry, Christ is a reflection of the Father or the Holy Spirit is just a reflection of the Father because that's not what the Trinity is. In fact, that, de- that devalues it. That doesn't say particularly what the Trinity is. And we're going to look at that here. And i got a couple of quotes for you from our, the, the new uh, work that's out on biblical doctrine. I think it clarifies some things for us. I'll get there in just a moment. But to think that it's just... God manifesting Himself or declaring Himself in a different way, that's what you call modalism. And I understand that's what something like T.D. Jakes, that's what he believes. And what we know and understand from Scripture, and it's a great mystery, is know that God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. So you understand what I mean when I say be careful with the word manifest. It's not just like you take a picture of something and lay it down and it's a nymph. It's not that at all. Okay, don't let them lose the Trinity. Don't let them lose in your mind their specific identity, what they actually are. Because we want to say once again, well, how could that be? How could they all be fully God at the same time? We understand that God is one in essence. How do, we, how do we bring that together? We see them differently. Well, I can only tell you it's over my head. <laughs> Alright? That's all I can tell you. Like so many things in the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And this is why I chose the verse. It says, who is the image of God. Okay? The image of God. That word there in the original language is the word icon. And we understand what that means, don't we? Yeah. Now, uh, I read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Uh, I marked, I wanted to read to you, I just can't, I can't give it to you any better than what the Scripture says. And I had marked Colossians chapter 1, verse, beginning with verse 15. Well, when you get a new Bible, the pages just want to stick, don't they? Let me find my spot here. Now let me read to you this morning, 15 through 29. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. 
He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And I'm just tempted to read on about the reconciliation. And you can read it there. I'll stop right there. But the Scriptures make it clear about who Christ is. And this this is heavy. This says a lot. And then you can flip over to chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. Now we're still in Colossians. We're moving to chapter 2, verse 9. Where it reads, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all, all rule and authority, and in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead." All that's involved here. That's what we see. That's what God the Father knows. That's not what all these people understood in detail at the point of His baptism and so forth, but certainly the life of Christ and the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, without a doubt, reflected and was indeed the fulfillment of God's plan from before time began all the way up to this point. And all of this would be revealed bit by bit by bit. It has to do with the mystery of the Trinity, if you will. It has to do with the mystery of the church as a whole. And that's what we see. God the Father knows this. And He says, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. It's the word udokeo. And it means to think well of or to approve, to have or to, to take pleasure in and we see that happening here oh good god is present in the new testament he's always present and he's always he's he's presented more as the father of the lord jesus christ than he is as the father of believers now granted he is but we don't often look at it that way we kind of get it focused upon us and the overwhelming emphasis here is that He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who He is. In John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, it says, But He answered them, My Father is working until now, and I Myself am working. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. And this is what Christ did throughout, was it not? Was to present Himself as God in flesh. And you can multitudes of times... I think of the Syrophoenician woman there when he was revealing himself to her. 
And she says, I know Messiah's coming. He's going he's gonna to straighten all this out. You know, he started dealing with her, quite frankly, about her sin, and she turned the, the conversation to religion, okay? He'll, he'll explain it when he gets here, she says. And Jesus re- remarks, he says, I who am speaking to you am he. I'm the one. I'm the one. This is how he reveals himself. Multitudes of verses. I just picked a few, of course. John chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. And we know this passage where he's talking about, Jesus begins by saying, I am the good shepherd. Here he says, my father who has given them to me, talking about those who believe is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. He, He says in verse 30, I and the father are one. We're one. And once again, how did the Jews respond to that in verse 31? They picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him, understanding that they were fully authorized in their mind, based on the law, to stone him to death for making himself equal with God. Can you... Yeah, but we can't, you know, I mean, that's true, but we can't fault them at that point because that's what they've been taught. And if we were in their place, and that's what we have been taught, and the Lord, I mean, and the Holy Spirit hadn't revealed to us that this was Christ, we'd be doing the same thing. I understand what you're saying, and I, and I, under, I clear it. But I balance that with, for instance, let me think. Um, okay, uh, Luke chapter 16, the rich man mm-hmm. and the death of Lazarus. And Jesus plainly tells him, he says, you know, if you, know, if you knew Moses you would know who I am. If you really understood, even if you approached what Moses taught by way of the law, Moses' example, if you understood that from a spiritual perspective, he said, you would know who I am because Moses talked about me, Jesus says. And that's a particular reference to the power of the Old Testament in relating the truths of the gospel about the coming Messiah. I find that fascinating. But and it's Jesus on the walk of Emmaus was talking to those exactly. people. Exactly. Saying, hey, I'm going to start with you back here and walk you through it. And they weren't <laughs> seeing anything until... Yeah, but what did, what did... the Great example, because what did happen to them on the road to Emmaus? What was their response? I love what they say. Did not our hearts burn within us as He what? opened up the Scriptures to us because they were looking and listening. Remember, they were trying to figure this out. They said, man, are you the only one who don't know what's been happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he talked about it. But great, yeah, that's the process. And it has to do with the motivation. It has to do with the reason for our inquiry. Because rest assured, you can have an inquiry about these things that's totally intellectual. It has nothing to do with the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And and how does the great honey? How does the Bible tell? And for those of you listening, when I said honey, that's my wife. Um, how how are we? How are we to seek Him? How does it say? How does it say that we are to seek Him? Whole heart with all of our heart, with nothing wavering. And this is what happens. Lord, reveal Yourself unto me. How does this word, whatever it is on any particular day, any particular time, how does it apply to me? What, this is the miraculous power of the Word of God. 
This is the same power, if you will, that brought creation into existence. Because all of that was spoken into existence. The power of His Word. Indeed. Because he says, this is my son, and we can only think in material ways about right. what sonship is. But um, I, reminded, I remember I was reminded of Psalm 7, which one? Psalm 2 7. Yeah. Says, um, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have forgotten you. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that, you know, he's there already, and he's declaring him right. to act, to be in the, the job. His job is like to be the son. So it's not just, I'm pre- I'm not, you're not being yeah. a gap. I'm not creating. And yet, right, and yet, as you say, yet we know he always has been. Right, right. And it's like, okay, 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 yeah, all right, yeah. What's well, wonderful, and it brings us to, I think, a point of humility. It does. It truly does. John 14 Verse 7, if you would have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and he's trying to bring comfort to them. You know, you've got, what was it? I think it was, uh, his name, Thaddeus, maybe? Yeah. Thomas, perhaps, said, you know, show us the Father, and it satisfies us. We see us even see the disciples in their in their humanness. Jesus is declaring, you know, God is my Father, and for you to know me is to know Him. As He said, He said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." And He says that in John fourteen eight, the latter part of that verse that follows, "He who has seen me has indeed seen the Father." I think I'm going to get finished here. Now, listen, I I pulled a a quote, if you will from the Biblical Doctrine book, and this is, actually it comes from the, the, it's a document called the Creeds of Christendom, okay? The Greek and Latin creeds. It's quoted there. The new, the new book from uh, Master Seminary, it's called Biblical Doctrine, uh, the writers of MacArthur and Mayhew. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I recommend you get one, and it's, it's, I keep telling about it, it's totally readable if you follow me. It's not, okay, whoa. The, the terms you need to know are in there. They're expl- it's explanatory. It's very good from an apologetic standpoint. If it's talking about a particular doctrine, it'll tell you how, you know, some believe the doctrine differently and, and why that's not accurate according to the Word of God. It puts that defense in there and puts the Scriptures in there. I'm really enjoying In fact, I've just finished reading it as part of my preparations. And uh, I, I, I highly recommend it. Get one. Get one. Biblical Doctrine, MacArthur and Mayhew. But here, listen. He says, uh, listen to this, this phrase. He says, we worship one God in Trinity. And Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. That's way back from the creed. And that kind of says it all. Let me say it once again. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. 
neither confounding the persons, the individual aspects of it, nor dividing the substance. Okay, that's a good place to start, okay? And then another quote, the doctrine of the Trinity, simply put, is that God is absolutely and eternally one essence subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons without division and without replication of the essence. That kind of pulls it together. I I can follow that. I can't tell you how. I can't tell you that. But I can follow that explanation. And if you have that book, uh, if you have the biblical doctrine, you can go to page 189 and, and look at that in the book as it talks about uh, the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have a paragraph to read. Uh, it, just, it just says it better than I can say it. And I want to read it slowly and then we'll, we'll finish up here. Since the Trinity cannot be comprehended by the human mind, the doctrine of the Trinity must be defined with negative statements. And this is called uh, apophatic theology or negative theology. And I'll give you an example. In fact, I just read an example. For example, the phrase without division and without replication of essence that I just read used above is expressive of negative theology. It's just a way to express it. Such phrases and assertions are needed to place proper boundaries on the positive, the positive statements, such as the one made above where I said God is absolutely an eternal one essence subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons. This positive statement needs boundaries to prevent people from thinking that the three persons each have either a, and follow this, a third or only a third of the divine essence. That's something called partialism. Or a full divine essence that is, distinct, that is distinct from the full but identical essence of the other two persons. That's called tritheism. Now, and here's the, here's the main phrase. If the essence were divided among the three persons, none of the persons would be divine. And if the essence were replicated in the three persons, the results would be three gods. That helps me, okay? <laughs> that helps me. Um, and then once again, you can find all that on page 189. So I had to read that. I read it again, and then I read it again. Then I got my highlighter out, and then it, then it became a whole lot clearer. And I trust you have the, the same experience. But, and I wanted, to sh- I wanted to read that to you as well. That's probably one of the, the deepest things you'll read there, and yet I could, I could follow that. Just to encourage you, if you will, to get a copy of that. So the Trinity cannot be comprehended in its fullness by the human mind. Our God is much greater than that. It is a mystery beyond human comprehension. Consequently, the doctrine must be accepted by faith based on how the Godhead is revealed in Scripture. And I think we've been true to that. What does the Scripture say? How does the Scripture identify the Trinity. So Scripture reveals, of course, more than one person as God. Oh, really? Where? Well, how about Psalm 45, 
6 and 7. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now listen to this. Therefore, God, our God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you see there. Also in Psalm 101, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, and you're familiar with this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, once again, in the Trinity, we just kind of crawl up to it, don't we? Trying to, to understand it. And yet at the same time, we know what we experience. We experience as believers the power and the fullness, the very presence of God within us. That's what we know, right? And we know the Son through the living Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the living Word of God. We see Him revealed in His Word. And we rejoice. We rejoice. And then God the Father, just knowing Christ being a possessor and in the fullness of the Spirit, being before God, He makes Himself known to us. He does that in nature. He does that in His Word. He does that through the Spirit. All of these are identical. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I hope that helps you this morning. (laughs)